0: Welcome back to Australian Detectives. When we left George Hatley's story, his Special Operations Group team were preparing for a big armed robbery in 1992. They knew who the bandits were, but not the target.
1: So, the day comes when Mm. it's on. Yep, same panel van, rocks up, parked virtually in the same area. We're sitting off about 100 metres away in a car park, looking dyingly opposite them.
0: The gang had another white panel van, identical to the one police had seen Asling driving the previous week, even down to the vertical rear doors. Asling was again at the wheel. He pulled into a space in the car park
1: about 30 metres to the right of the freight office. How were you equipped? equipped. We had our trusty 12-gauge from an 870p shotgun. The SG load? Yes, yes. It, we had the different rounds for different jobs. We had SGs, which are about eight or nine significant pallets in the cartridge, and you can get, you know, different grades of shotgun shells, and they just, you know, shoot at birds, and they send a cloud of about a metre wide of pallets, lots and lots of little, little pallets. They had a bit of um, penetration. So, we were equipped the shotguns, uh, handguns, semi-automatic... What did mil- you carry by then? Uh, Sig Sauer 226 9mm pistol, semi-automatic pistol. Most people had the thirty eight still then, the yeah, yeah. Smith & Wesson, but yep. the, the Special Operations Group went for that? Yeah, look, and the police, quite rightly, have gone to more rounds in a gun because you get in a firefight and you've got six rounds, they're going to go pretty quick because the first five will probably be from the officer... Closing his eyes, squeezing the trigger at such a horrible threat against his life, he just won't react that well. But the semi-automatics got more rounds, and so we had our other tactical equipment: gas masks and handcuffs and things like zip ties. We don't, we didn't use handcuffs; we use zip ties and ballistic vests. They weren't that ballistic in those days, but what we had, we wore, and they were heavy. And as I said, our ballistic baseball cap.
0: Right. So you're observing now from 150 metres away in a car park, Mm. and
1: what can you see? Uh, Just a normal sort of day, people moving about, and this panel van just sitting there.
0: It's 1.40pm. The small car park is nearly
1: full. People are going in and out of the freight office. And all of a sudden, without any notice, the Armaguard van rolls up, and I've gone whoa, jeez, this might actually happen today. We've got an um, Armoured Guard van rolled up because previously, the week before, it didn't come. There was no sign of that. Our expectations were must be an armoured vehicle situation because we just couldn't work out what else it might be. So the van rolls up, pulls up, they start to get their bags of money out, big red bags, and all of a sudden the panel van reverses very quickly.
0: Asling reversed the van away from the armoured car, stopping in front of Bay 7.
1: Probably 30, 40 metres it drove in reverse. Back doors flew open. Two guys jumped out with Michael Jackson-type masks on and guns and said to Billy and the others, I actually woke one of the blokes up in the slumber because he said, oh, it's not going to happen, And it all happened very quick. The two crooks, for some
0: reason, don't go up the walkway that runs from one side into the office, but clamber up onto the landing and run into the office, brandishing handguns. Now there's a threat to the public. What was the judgment call you had to make as the tactical leader? You could have let the robbery go
1: on, you could have grabbed them there. What was the thought process? A whole plan from the start was prevent them from doing the robbery. And again, we had one person sitting in a van as was the week before, no indication because the windows had been blacked out, uh, as the week before, and um, yeah, it just happened so quick, just not enough time to prevent them from doing the robbery, and. Um, and now, when they're inside, another problem. If you go and grab them now, there's a chance of hostages. What we were going to do is intercept them at the vehicle rather than run the risk of running in You know, and, and, and in fairness, we didn't have the time on our side. So we approached, not at high speed, just casually normal speed, approached, pulled up next to the van, and uh, sure enough, I got a bit of a nudge to the head on that day. Not an egg, but uh, the adrenaline was happening. The timing
0: was perfect. The SOG's plumber's van pulled in just as the crooks were emerging with the cash bags. The police photographer snapped what turned out to be Normie Lee, dragging two cash bags with his left hand. The silver 357 Magnum he'd stolen from the McDonald's security guard in his right hand. He's
1: straining and can only manage a fast walk with his burden. I remember them coming down the stairs out of the... Officers of answered freight, bag in hand, gun in hand, approaching the vehicle. You pull up close to the van there, how far away from the van? Oh only three metres I think it's roughly. It was pretty close. And sure enough I opened the side door and I was first out and things were happening pretty quick. Because the robbery
0: itself took about twenty seconds, I believe.
1: Yeah. We had them on the pavement,
0: they were close to the van when we pulled up. Lee's got two heavy bags, but has got one. He's dragging his. This was the moment the floor in the plot was exposed. Their million dollars was headed for ATMs, so it had to be every denomination, from $10 to $100. Heaving these bags across the car park left them vulnerable to attack. They needed at least one other gunman to cover their dash to the van, but that would have meant cutting another man in cheapness was about to bring them undone what happens next uh there's a flurry
1: of things Happened. we got out the vehicle was there i called on the driver i could hear the acceleration of the engine and he was off he was focused on getting away here's some people that have just jumped out in black got large guns and threatening i looked at him he didn't have a gun that i could see as a car engine revs mounted. What I did was uh, put a shotgun around through the front left-hand tyre. You know, I probably should have put it through the engine block. Hindsight's a good thing. And the car moved off. Uh, so what's happening at the back of the car while this is going on is Barchi and Lee have jumped in the vehicle with the bags of money. So what happened next? I've got no vision of them sitting in the back or them at the back because I was dealing with the driver at the time.
0: Lee and Barchi had managed to get to the van and threw the money bags and themselves into the back just as Asling was taking off. The two rear doors were open, and when Asling stomped on the gas, the two gunmen were jolted out onto the road, along with one bag of money. The van roared off, leaving Haitley facing Lee and Barchi, still wearing their Michael Jackson masks. And the next image I had was seeing Norman Lee. Lee was on Haightley's right, heading towards him as he chased the van. Lee's left
1: side was facing Haightley, And he had a gun in his right hand. All I remember is he had a gun. A 357 Magnum. And in slow motion, I suppose you could call it, it appeared that he was dropping his handgun momentarily, but then just brought it up and it was pointed well and truly at me and in my defence fired around. And he dropped to the ground. Uh, There were other shots happening. He was hit from another direction as well, I think. Yeah, he was, by the officer next to me.
0: Lee was dead before he hit the ground. Haitley's round passed through his left hand and into his chest. This wasn't over. Steve Barchi was on Haitley's left side, also
1: chasing the departing getaway car. We deployed two outside, two out the back of our van, and another guy, Martin. They engaged with Barchi. Barchi's handgun was fired. I didn't hear it in the flurry of what happened. Who knows, there was some indication that it had dropped to the ground and fired. I doubt that because it was a revolver. It might have gone off, but I don't know. He doesn't know. And he gets hit with at least three rounds from a Remington shotgun and survives remarkably. He did. He suffered pretty horrendous injuries. I don't think he's got use of his left arm now. I think a round hit his left shoulder and destroyed that part of it. But fortunately for him, he, he survived Then paid his dues, went to jail. And best as I know, he's been running a clean life since. So Lee's down, Barchi's down, Asling's vehicle gets picked up another 80 mm. metres or so away. Uh, part of our planning was we had a lot of what-ifs, uh, secondary situations in case they did get away. And in fact, Asling got away. And he drove exactly the way I thought he would. If he had to turn left and headed towards the terminal, there were traffic lights, congestion, and and all sorts of problems ahead of him. So in their planning, they would have struck that area out because it would have just been no good. Albeit, we did have a team there just in case they chose that silly way to go. They turned Diagon. diagonally right and went up a side street, which I thought was the closest. And you know, bank robbery—you should turn left. Well, as soon as he got. Through that intersection of the service road, he turned left straight up the road. Now, I had a crew there waiting as we did the parallel road, and I said to this young bloke at the time... In the briefing before the operation... He said to me, Mr Hately, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, you're the driver, I want you to stop him. And he goes, right. So, eventually, Ashlyn goes around the corner and this guy tells me, the driver... There was a two-way carriageway and he said, I was doing 80 kilometres an hour from a standing start in a Nissan four-wheel drive with a bull bar on it and he just put his foot on the thing and he saw the van come around with the doors flying in the air and heard all the shots happening and he's on one side of the road, Hassling's on the other and he just, at 80 kilometres an hour, pulled in front of him and hit him full on and the poor old sergeant in the passenger seat hit the windscreen, lucky he didn't go through it, but he put a fair dent in the windscreen, gave himself a bit of a headache and, again, only had the ballistic baseball cap on. But John, the driver, stopped Astling's car and if you saw the photos, you'd have a bit of a giggle because it was pretty messed up. And uh, I think Astling might have lost a couple of teeth or something. But the arrest crew, we'd trained, we'd prepared and they carried that out perfectly mm. and saved Aisling. Astling actually had a gun. I didn't see it first up, but he did have a handgun, and they arrested him.
0: In the back of the wrecked van, police found two more firearms, a 5.56mm full-auto rifle with a pistol grip and a semi-auto 7.62mm assault rifle. If Lee and Barchi had managed to stay in the van, this firepower would have been unleashed. Yeah, A high drama at the airport. This hits the press and there are critics, even amongst some pro-police journalists, they're asking the question, was this the right approach? The stakes were too high. You know, there was talk about the fact that one round, probably from a police gun, ended up through a window and hit a wall in a meal area Mm.
1: or one of the buildings. Do you know, I mean, there was the capacity for disaster. Look, I got asked this same question by a coroner in another job once and my simple explanation was that I was there and he wasn't. Our goal was always to prevent the armed robbery. And, you know, some people criticise us for not arresting them in the car. Well, didn't know if there was anyone in the back of the car. There was a bloke sitting there in a stolen car. How far do you go? With minimising the risk, we did everything we could to minimise the risk to the public. And I think that round was a shotgun pellet, one of eight pallets out of a shotgun that skipped, and shotgun pallets skip off pavement, and uh, I think there was five shots shot by here, and three of them hit Barchi, and that window that got the pallet through was high up in the building. So Yeah, it end up in a notice board way over head height and so forth, so it Look, wasn't... you can't ask criminals to engage in a safe zone. You know, they're going to do things, and sometimes police have got no alternative except engage in their chosen area. Yeah. yeah. Um, as far as you were concerned,
0: this went off just like you'd planned it, just like the training, just like the rehearsals. Mm. If it
1: happened today, I wonder how police would go about it similar way, do you think? I'd hope so, yeah. I mean, you know, you got to put the scenario out on the table again. What would you do? Well, some might go, just go and arrest them and try and get them to confess to conspiracy to armed robbery and so on and so forth. And did they have intent to harm people. Well, they had guns, handguns on them. They had two particular rifles, high calibre rifles. One was semi-automatic, one was automatic that had been altered. They had tripods on these guns and they'd practised the day before. So I would gauge their intent to use those firearms as pretty high. And when you've got high-velocity rounds, flying shotguns have got a certain distance... High-velocity rounds have got kilometres sometimes. So you have no regrets whatsoever? None. I was very happy with the way everyone operated.
0: When it was all over, Haightley peeled back the dead bandit's Michael Jackson mask to confirm his identity. It was Lee. As a kid, George had played pool with Lee's brother in his home area and he knew who Normie was. They'd taken different paths from the same background. George became the soldier cop and Normie the professional crook each prepared for the risks of their chosen occupations. Just like Haightley, Lee had planned for multiple scenarios. He was wearing three layers of clothes, a duffel coat covering a suit and tie on top of a pullover, which was ironically tagged made-for-life adrenaline sportswear.
1: Clearly, Lee had come knowing how this might end. It's tragic that someone dies every time, but they wrote the scenario. We just joined in. How do you debrief when you're the officer who's pulled the trigger and someone's died? We uh, have to attend police psychologists. That was a mandatory thing. And it applies for any officer where they face a life-threatening situation or a tragic situation like a car accident and so forth. That was mandatory. But in the special operations group, we'd trained for it, we'd thought about it, we'd mentally prepared for it, we'd physically prepared for that sort of thing. With a Formula One racing car driver, he has an accent, he trains for it, prepares for it, expects something being the worst scenario, unlike your Sunday afternoon driver that is driving along. And we debrief, we have a very, very serious debrief about it and all the bad laundry comes out in those debriefs and we tried to learn by our mistakes and in so many cases we did, yeah.
0: But I think I've heard of other officers we've dealt with in this series actually who when the light's on, daylight's fine, Nighttime, sleeping, dreams, things like that, post-traumatic stress, you know, how did you deal with all that sort of phenomenon?
1: I dealt with it really well actually because I talk about this a lot well, a lot, on occasions to people and in the past officers, and certainly the uh, police psychologists, because we'd been through their door a few times, we had a bit of feedback and they'd ask for our feedback. And I'd say, for example, Stephen Tynan, killed, murdered in Wall Street, had previously, I think weeks before that, been involved in a fatal shooting himself, shot an armed robber in a TAB. The guy lived and died in hospital some days later. It wasn't even a a fatal shot, apparently, but he did die. So Stephen Tynan was in the police department's wisdom, was sent home on his own, and he had to deal with his demons. You know, it was completely justified what he did. Uh, The coroner found that he acted in um, self-defence and engaged with this guy. But what I point out is you've got a uniformed police officer with limited amount of training, sufficient but limited, where a, a officer that's trained pretty well in the SOG prepares for it mentally, talks about it, gets engaged with other officers that have been involved in shootings, photo shootings and so forth, you get to a point where you start to realise that what you're doing is you're reacting to your training. What a normal police uniform officer has to deal with is something way out of the equation. He'll question himself straight away. first question he asks is, what if? What if it had been me that got shot? I could have got shot. He had a gun. I was just quicker. And that's part of the trauma of what police officers suffer, because the one and only time I ever had a situation where I suffered post-traumatic stress was... I hadn't shot the guy. The guy next to me had shot him and the criminal had fallen over and died. This was the fatal shooting of Frank Velastro in June 1987. We discussed that earlier. And for every waking moment, for days, I kept seeing this scene and I couldn't work it out. I thought, oh, God, I'm going nuts. So I went and saw the psychologist. In those days, you had to go and knock on the door to see them in those early days, then it was mandatory later. He said, what's the problem? I said, oh, I keep seeing this thing. He goes, oh, you're stressed. And I said, I'm actually not stressed. And he goes, but it's a symptom of post-traumatic stress. And I said, "Ah, oh, right. And I said, I'm not going mad. He goes, no, never had that experience since.
0: The psychological support was critical as the SOG was involved in numerous high-risk actions during Haightley's time. Equally important
1: was learning from tactical mistakes. We had the debrief, warts and all debrief. We talked through it and someone made a mistake. Gee, you made a mistake. Why did you make the mistake? Is it a result of lack of training? I remember one situation where as a result of, it was me in particular, let a shot go and nearly killed a woman and a baby and, you know, my whole life. How close was that? Real close. She was on a mattress with the baby on the floor, luckily, and if she had been in a bed, probably would have killed her. Internal Affairs interviewed me. Everyone interviewed me about that, and I just didn't have an answer. I don't know why the gun went off. But during the interview with the Internal Affairs, they said, what happened? I said, well, gee, I went to the window. The guy next to me put a reamer through the window, which cleans the glass out, and what happened then, the curtains came back down, and he grabbed the curtains and the shot went off. So they said, oh, OK, what happened? And I said, oh, I cut my finger on the glass. There's a slither of glass still in the thing and it must have cut through my left hand and I was a left-handed shooter. Uh, i still got the scar on my trigger finger on my left hand and they then showed me a photograph of blood on the glass and what had happened, in hindsight, was simple. I'd gone to the window. My intent was to point my weapon through the cleared window and the reasonably new guy in the group had cleared the window and in his efforts to clear my sight, he grabbed the curtains and when he came in, he's bumped me and all i have done was hit the jagged bit of glass with my finger and it was enough to put three pounds of pressure on the trigger because the gun was safety off, finger outside the trigger guard but hitting the glass, pushed the finger in and squeezed it and hit the trigger. Boom, goes off, which wasn't a fun day for me and I was in that room cuddling the woman and baby to make sure they didn't have any holes in them. But the lesson we learnt out of that was very simple. Safety is on at all times until you have a threat. Right, debrief.
0: That's a very important part. It is. So,
1: listen, by this stage,
0: you're one of the most experienced officers in special operations group probably around the country. You're at the heart of your powers.
1: 1994, you get out. Why? I was doing a job on a bikers place. You know, we did a lot of jobs on the bikers and I was in the back of a F-150. We didn't have the proper equipment in those days. We used to grab anything we could, and I don't know where we got the F-150 from, but we drove up to the farmhouse, but there was a big cyclone fence, and we tried to push the gates open, and ended up the vehicle climbed up on the a fence and the whole fence fell down and uh, I'm in the back with another guy Paul Carr and we were the same rank, Paul had been in the SOG a bit longer than me and but you know very good mates he's probably my best mate in the police force and tragically he's passed away Inspector Paul Carr became the head of the SOG but died in Tibet after being
0: trapped on the world's sixth highest peak in 2003
1: and we looked at each other as we were driving up the Panton Hills I think it was, the bikeys place and uh, we are just talking normally and we shouldn't have been talking normally. We should have been focused. We should have been. But we'd done this so many times. It was um, not boring at all, uh, but it was. Commonplace. Commonplace, yeah. And I just said after that, I said, you know, I'm going to look for something else to do. So I didn't want to promote They kept trying to promote me to senior sergeant and that meant that I'd do all the paperwork and wasn't allowed in on the jobs. That didn't excite me and I thought, well, if I'm going to do an office job, I'll get out of the police force. And I'd done 18 years, joined on the 12th of July, resigned on the 12th of July, 94, and planned it, prepared, planned it and did something else.
0: And that something else was introducing the taser into Australia. George Haitley talks about that in the second part of this Australian detective story. George, now, your next move, I mean, you've made a, a big impact in your time in the force, but arguably you've had a bigger impact on law enforcement, not just here, probably elsewhere as well, with your work on the taser.
1: Mm. How did that come about? 1997, I got a call from Kel Glare, former commissioner. Former chief commissioner, yeah. Yep. He said, can you come and see me? So I went down there, and in a nutshell, they got me involved in the wolf dispute.
0: In April 1998... Stevedore Patrick sacked all of its employees and imposed a lockout at most of its ports, including Melbourne's Webb dock. The aim was to break the Maritime Union's power. The next day, new non-union staff were running the operations. George Haitley planned and executed this on behalf of Patrick's.
1: And I, I planned that from start to finish over several months and uh, executed that on the 7th of April ninety-eight. And it was very successful, albeit the media wasn't pro-us at the time. But um, Did you worry about the media? No. No. <laughs> I didn't think no. so. The productivity on the walls is great. People have got good, safe jobs now, and, and I'm really proud of what my part of it was. But during that time, I met a guy who was an Italian ballistic glass manufacturer, and he was very interested in what I had done. And uh, he said, oh, you might want to look at tasers. And I said... No. I said, tasers don't work. And he said... Because you'd been shot with an air taser. Air taser, Taser. yeah. What's the the difference between the two? One is pain compliant, which is like getting stung by a dart or a bit of electricity in a specific area in your body, where taser, the newer technology, was 19 pulses a second for five seconds and it incapacitated the skeletal muscles in your body. Completely (laughs) different technology. So the air taser, for example, I was one of the, I won't say short blokes in the group, but average size, uh, they're a lot bigger blokes. You keep bringing this up, George. Yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, is a bit of a problem. And put us in the boxing ring, hooded us and come from all around us with these sparking things, you know, and hit us with them. And all they did was get me more focused, more angry, more, you know, wanting to fight through it. And I could, didn't stop me. And that's what police officers suffer sometimes when they, they engage with a focused combatant, whether they're rage, alcohol, mentally affected, and they'll fight through these things like battens and even handguns, like even bullets, you know. There's been people that have been shot and they haven't stopped being in a real pending threat for quite a long time. A situation in Miami, Florida, back in the 80s, and I actually went to the debrief. The FBI came out to Australia and did a debrief on it. It was such an important thing. But the first round that was shot, was by an agent, FBI agent dove into one of the bad guys and no drugs, alcohol or anything involved in the bad guys. And the first round that was shot in that firefight was a fatal shot, shot him in the heart and he lived for another two and a half minutes and killed two FBI agents and injured five. So as a police officer, you've got to try and get equipment that's going to incapacitate. So the only way to incapacitate surely with a a firearm is shoot between the eyes and follow that line down to, I think it's C3 or something of the spinal cord, and that'll stop someone straight away. But other than that, you run the risk of them being, as I say, a real and impending threat. And i had seen a few situations where people had been shot multiple times and still fought on So the taser's a great uh, bit of technology. How many times have you been tased? Oh, 13 times. Right. Um, You remember each one? Yeah, each one. And uh, funny enough, I did one in front of about 450 police officers in Las Vegas. They asked for volunteers. And I kept putting my hand up and they wanted volunteers for different tests and so forth. And I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke. I'm reasonably fit still. And they just didn't grab me. And I went and complained. I said, I've come all the way from Australia, and you blokes won't pick me. And they said, well, put your hand up for the next one. So I did. And it was a new technology, x rep, which was a extended projectile situation where you fired it out of a shotgun, and it was a extended range electronic projectile was what x X-REP stands for. So you fired it from a shotgun and it was an impact round, so it hurt like getting hit by a golf ball at about 10 feet away from a person swinging it. But what they did, in fairness to me, thank you, at the time, was they used alligator clips from that same technology and just connected me to it and then fired it. But there was one other silly person that put their hand up out of the 450 and he went first. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm going to experience this new X-Rep taser and they fired it, well, this bloke screamed like a stuffed pig. And I'm standing there, lining up to go up there on stage, and I'm going up stage, was like going to the guillotine, and thinking, oh, what have I got myself into? And so anyway, they connected me up. But I'd had it so many times previously in demonstrations that I'd done and, you know, whatever, there's, and they connected me up and fired it, and it was a different feeling. It was a wave of pain. It was an interesting thing, but... Again, I represented Australia, and at the end of it, didn't make a sound. They lowered me to the ground, as they do when you get incapacitated because you'll fall over and they hold on to you. And I jumped up, and I was still connected, and they were just fascinated at the fact I didn't make a sound. And they said, how did you do that? And I said, well, I wasn't going to let you blokes know how painful it was. And, well, the whole place was an uproar. They thought it was hilarious. And here's a, an Australian, an Aussie, as I said, fought through that, Thing. back to training back to the way you conduct yourself yeah yeah definitely and as an interesting funny example my daughter who's uh, had three kids now she's in her 30s now but uh oh, you better still still stay young then george yeah, If she yeah, hears this yeah. buddy but she said to me can i get exposed to a taser one day i said reluctantly i said well no and she said well I'll, i'm not asking now i'm telling i want to get a taste of Taser, I said, well, we've got a course running, and you come along and watch it. And there was 45 officers from Australia here in Melbourne one time, and I got my daughter to come along, and she was, you know, dressed appropriately, tight jeans and T-shirt and long blonde hair and, you know, ponytail and all the blokes, you could just see them all looking at her, and it very fit. And next thing, um, Hans Moraro, the head instructor from Taser, said, okay, who's first? And my daughter put her hand up. And they're all going, well, what's going on here? And they connected her up, they fired it, and um, she didn't make a sound because I said to her, do not let anyone know this hurts you. And she goes, okay. And I said, don't make a sound. You can do it, you can do it. And I briefed her, I told her my expectations, and sure enough, she did not make a sound. And at the end of it, she jumped up and turned around to them all and said, well, not as bad as childbirth. (laughs) And and the point is, officers engage with mentally affected people, alcohol, drug-affected people, rage-affected people. They're not going to feel pain. I've seen it. I've seen, you know, big Maori people hit across the head with baton, and they just shake their head and just keep going. I engage with a guy once in an interview room. He tried to escape out of the interview room. I was just there to take his name. It had nothing to do with the case. And he said, I'm going. I said, oh, you can't go. And he goes, no, I'm going. And I said, well, I'm going to stop you. And I looked at him. He's six foot plus, big bloke. And, um, he uh, decided to go, and I just grabbed him by the clothes, uh, dislocated one of my thumbs and sprained the other one in a flurry of punches, hung on to him, but I saw an opportunity, and I lifted my knee up into his groin as hard and as quick as, and as powerful as I could. It didn't do a thing. And later on, I had a bruise on my knee. From his testicles? Yeah. And anyway, all the police officers in the <laughs> station could hear the banging, carrying on, and I think I might have yelled out, Help! a couple of times, and they all come in and they uh, sat him on the floor and handcuffed him. I sat down with this bloke and said, now, can I have your name? And he he goes, yeah. (laughs) I think the last officer said, you know, do you want to give him a bit back? And I said, no. No, he's handcuffed to the chair and that's it. And the the guy asked me, he said, why didn't you flog me? And I said, well, it's just not me, you know. And I said, and the other thing, I could see you out in the street one day and you could flog me again, you know. So it was quite funny. And the thing I asked him, though, was, look, I hit you as hard as I could with my kneecap into your nuts. And he said, yep. And I said, why didn't it drop you? And he said, you know, it hurt like hell. The pain was severe, but I knew if I went down... I was going to cop it off you. And he said, I wasn't going to go down. And he was just a focused combatant. So you think of a little policeman or woman nowadays that have to engage with these things. They've got to be given the right tools. And TASER incapacitates from a distance, from a safe distance. It's
0: funny because people are still complaining about TASER. There's the occasional death. It does happen. But they focus on that when you realise how much, how many people have not died because
1: a firearm wasn't involved. Yeah. I have argued the point over time and I'll still argue the point now, give me the evidence where someone dies as a result, direct result of a taser, and you'll find that it's always something else that contributes towards that death. And and I've been all over the world with taser. I used to handle the Southeast Asia part of it, Japan and Indonesia and Korea and all sorts of places. And this question always come up with the authorities and sometimes politicians and, and so on. And I said, there is no direct evidence. Even Amnesty International used to jump up and down about all these taser-related deaths. And Amnesty International would challenge, and I challenged a few of them too, when I would engage with them locally or through the media or, or on radio and so forth. And I'd say, well, show me. And they couldn't. And what it was, I'd say... They were days of related deaths because they had other contributing factors. Um, people died from positional asphyxia. There was a famous situation in Canada where a guy had flown from uh, Ukraine or someplace like that, couldn't speak English. He was in behind customs for eight hours. Could you imagine someone caught in customs lost for eight hours in this uh, Canadian airport and eventually he went nuts and threw things around the Royal Mounties came in and engaged with him and fired a taser and, and there was video of it not one but two coroners it took two years to determine what the cause of death was for that particular guy. Taser wasn't. Yet it's still it's controversial. It's He died from positional asphyxia. Yeah. You should have seen the Mounties. They were big blokes. Some coppers eat too many donuts and coffee and they were big blokes and they just sat on him. and He died. In fairness, you've got to read coroner's reports in the media, the ain't worst enemies sometimes, and they jump in and say, Oh, Taser, you know, there's a Brazilian student in Sydney that got chased, and half of Brazil were on protest march about Australian police killing one of the young ones. And it wasn't Taser at all. That was a classic positional asphyxia. In the right. excitement, they all
0: jumped on him. Right. And he was also high on methamphetamine, I think, at the time. No, no, no.
1: Or... I think it had drugs in his system, yeah. and I think it had LSD as well, and he was on a trip inside a Seven Eleven or similar, went to grab some bickies, as people do, and, you know, get the munchies, and when he got confronted, he took off. Well, the unfortunate thing there was police had just gone to an armed robbery. A police officer had been shot earlier in the night, and here's another armed robbery. The hype of, you know, I think it was four or five o'clock in the morning, police officers were, you know, they were tired, they were full of adrenaline, they'd heard this... Arm robbery in progress. It just, you know, Chinese whisper got out of control. And the next thing they get to the scene, here's a young bloke running down the street, middle of winter, no shirt. Chase him and they hit him with a taser. Only one dart connected, so it didn't affect him, didn't connect, didn't get that circuit happening. You need both circuits in. Only one dart hit him. And even if two had hit him, it wouldn't have killed him. What killed him eventually as far as I read, was positional fixture? Right, fair enough. Okay,
0: and I think this is consistently the case, that, I mean, it, it, most yeah. of these deaths, there is a rebuttal and coroners get involved in it. I think the debate is, is now settled, frankly, as it, far as I'm concerned. It is, yep. Now, because of TV, films and media as well, it's the Homicide Squad and the Special Operations Group. They're the kind of the mythologised roles, mm. you know. I'm sure there's a kid out there, girl or a boy, who's thinking about a career in police and maybe even thinking about special operations, What advice would you give to a young person or even an older
1: person who's thinking of that sort of career? Mm. I've got a nephew in the police force now and, and I've tried to give him advice but they're going to have to experience things themselves. My advice for anyone that's thinking of joining the police force in have a go. There's so many careers, you know. There's, as you've said, the uh, you know higher levels, but then you got normal policing, which is such a, you know, the different police officers I've spoken to. Charlie Bazzina is a classic, you know. Charlie and other police officers that were involved in homicide squad, they were God's gift to the community. Really, they were so focused, so good at what they did, and through some really silly decision making by some higher level officers, they shifted them and. There were people, Bluey, that used to drive the police bus. You know, he used to drive us to different training gigs and so forth. And one day, red as red hair, this bloke, with the pale blue uniform in the day. I said to him one day, I said, Bluey, how can you drive on the police bus? You yeah, know, just tell me, you've always driven the police bus. And he said, George, I joined the police force to drive this bus. And I said, good on you. And I thought, fantastic, safe, focused, safe. So there's... So many opportunities, so many careers, and you can change. You know, yeah, I went from well. uh, uniform to special duties to I went to the surveillance unit. I went to major crime squad as a detective, and then the SOG. So mm-hmm. I had a field day.
0: Well, thank you for your service to the community, yeah. and My thanks, pleasure, for, and thanks for being a guest on Australian Detectives. Thanks very much. Executive producer Grant Tothill, mixing, editing, and theme music by Matt Nikolich, associate producer Matt Dwyer. Additional editing by Kelly Falston. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producers Jack Shand and Oscar Gordon. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.